After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of God. And I would like to invite you to take a Bible and turn it to Revelation chapter 4 this morning. Revelation chapter 4. As you're turning your Bibles there, Revelation's the last book in the Bible, so if you're not too familiar with where things are at, it's easy to find. Uh, so you can head to the back and find the fourth chapter of Revelation. As you're turning your Bibles there, I was, um, had the opportunity just recently to spend some time with an older gentleman who has lived uh, most of his life. By any measure, he's lived a long life, but he was recently given only months to live. And so he's in the midst of asking some pretty big questions, questions that by his own admission, he largely spent most of his life avoiding. And yet now with his uh, home going so imminent, so close, he, he couldn't help but avoid them and he wanted to ask me about them. And I imagine you and I can relate to his experience. The question that was on his mind was, looking back on my life, what's it been all about? What's it been all about? Has it, 
Has it mattered? Has it worth, is it worth it? He talked about the family he has. It's a large family. He loves them. It's been a good family. He talked about his career. He talked about trying to live as good a life as he could and be as good a man as he could be. And again, by his own admission, he said, I, I guess I tried to do that and busy myself enough that I didn't have to worry about whether that was good enough. I was just doing the best I knew how. But now I can't escape the question. Is that good enough as I stand on death's threshold? If you work outside your home, I don't know what kind of questions came to you this week, but this is what pastors get to do for a living. What would you tell them? Some of you are like, I have no idea. That's why I'm not a pastor. That's your problem. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, in some senses, it is all of our problem. If we're Christians, God does Call us to be invested in the lives of people and to give them real hope. I don't know that there's one right answer in that situation, but one thing I was able to tell this gentleman is that according to the Bible, this life, which was the the ending of which in his case seems so imminent, and, and, and that was kind of causing his fear, it's almost over, has it been good enough, it's just about done, is actually only like the introduction to a novel. I was able to tell him that according to the Bible, chapter 1 hasn't even started yet. And so, yes, how we've lived this life is immensely important, but this is not all there is. There is a greater reality, spiritual reality, operating at all times all around us. And knowing that there's a larger eternal reality that's over and above this physical reality makes all the difference in the world. Today we're resuming our study of the New Testament book of Revelation. Uh, We took a break from that this past Sunday. We're now picking that up again. So far we have seen uh, the uh, image of Jesus Christ in chapter 1 of this book. And then we saw the letters that Jesus addressed to seven first century churches in chapters 2 and 3. And that's kind of where we took a break. And we kind of set out from the beginning to say this whole thing, the whole message of the book is that there is an ongoing struggle, there is an ongoing battle, as it were, between God and between sin and death that continues in this world. But because of Jesus, the decisive blow has already been struck. The enemy has already been checkmated, though the game is not yet over. And it is in this reality that you and I live as Christians. And that really leads us up to where we're beginning this morning, chapter 4 of Revelation. This is the part of the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with it, you probably know this, where uh, the Bible gets really weird, really fast. It's already been kind of weird, chapters 1 through 3, but that's sort of known as the safe part of the book of Revelation. Now we get into the really weird stuff. We had these seven letters addressed to seven churches that were real churches in space and time and history toward the end of the first century uh, AD. And now, excuse me, we, we shift to this vision that Jesus shows to the apostle John and then through him to these churches about the larger reality all around human history. What's going on in heaven all throughout human history and ultimately how God is going to bring about a conclusion to human history. Both are operating all the time. Now, chapters 4 and 5 are connected, and that's probably the most important thing to say about them this morning. We're going to get chapter 4 this morning, chapter 5 next week. They're both short. They're both connected. Chapter 4 essentially sets the stage, and chapter 5 then carries out a bit of drama on the stage. 
That's kind of the way to think about them. Chapter 4 is all description of the image, the visionary image that the Apostle John was given of heaven. It's sort of setting the stage. Nothing's really happening yet. We're just kind of seeing what heaven's throne room is like or an image of it. And in this image, God the Father, that was a nice emphasis, God the Father is the central figure. I'm going to try to tighten this down one more time. If that keeps going, I'll switch microphones, okay? Okay, we'll see how we're doing now. God the Father is the central figure in Revelation 4. Revelation chapter 5, the drama takes place. There's a, a problem that is presented and there's a resolution to that problem and God the Son is the central figure in that drama. We will see that next Sunday. For now, we look at how the stage is set in Revelation chapter 4. It's a setting of a bigger vision of heaven above and beyond the events of this world. We see that right away in chapter 1 when this vision begins. Uh, John, the apostle, is writing this, sees, as it were, a window into heaven, or he describes it as a door standing open in heaven. And, and the voice that spoke to him at first, in the context, that's the voice of Jesus Christ himself, calls him to come up through that window or through that door and see what's going on in the larger heavenly reality that is taking place over and above human history and human events. He's given a glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak, right now. And that's kind of the context of all the rest of the visions in the book of Revelation. There is a larger spiritual reality, the Bible tells us, that's operating around us all the time. Though we're typically unaware of it. And this means several things. It means that every action in this life has eternal significance. Every action in this life has eternal significance. It also means that every power in this life is subject to the ultimate power of God in heaven. It may not look that way or feel that way at any given moment, but God's throne is always there and he is in charge. And finally, it means that the meaning of life isn't limited to this life. There is so much more going on than what you and I see and feel and experience week in, week out, year in, year out. We don't see it, but it is every bit as real as the world that we do see and that we do touch and that we do uh, 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 sort of smell and taste with our own senses, the world that we participate in and experience. And that's the point of the book of Revelation, is to peel back the curtain, as it were, to lift up the hood, choose your metaphor, to show you what's going on behind the scenes. And by the way, this is the connection to the letters of the seven churches in the previous two chapters. Uh, many people, I think understandably, but nonetheless mistakenly, assume that there's a big break here in the book of Revelation. Those first couple chapters are kind of normal, and then the rest of it is kind of weird, right? The first couple chapters deal with earthly stuff that we can relate to. The rest of it is all bizarre stuff that I don't really know how it relates to us. It seems like two completely different sections, but Revelation is not written that way. These two sections are intimately interconnected with one another. You see, the churches of Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3 needed the visions of these next 19 chapters in order to do what Jesus had called them to do. Wow, we're getting like, 
We're getting all kinds of cool stuff this morning. <laughs> Snow falling from heaven. Andy, I think I'm going to go ahead and switch mics, okay? Now, I can't deal with all the insulation falling out of the ceiling, but I can at least get rid of the popping and crackling. So we're going to do that. All right. Thank you, sir. They needed those visions in order to do what Jesus had called them to do, which was what? It was to repent of their sins and to suffer well and long for their Savior. Now, if they were going to do that, they needed to have the curtain pulled back to understand the reality of heaven. That's what God is trying to drive at for us here. In fact, that's really the key message today. Let's just put it out here right at the beginning. This is the bottom line. You can all go home as soon as I finish this sentence. No, please don't do that. But this is the bottom line. A big view of God like the one we get in this chapter is essential for long-term faithfulness to Him. That's really the point this morning, and, and I chose those words carefully. A big view of God is essential. I realize that's a strong word. It is essential to long-term faithfulness to Him. You can put this in the opposite as well. There is simply no such thing as a faithful Christian who has a small view of God. That creature does not exist in the universe. You either have faithless Christians with a small view of God or faithful Christians with a big view of God. So chapter 4 is a vision of heaven. And, and just as we dive into this, let me remind us, since it's been a couple weeks, that Revelation is uh, the, uh, it's a type of writing that doesn't exist anymore in the modern world, which is why it seems so strange to us, because we're just not familiar with it. Uh, we have, we're familiar with different kinds of writing. Uh, they, they're sometimes called genres. I mean, we know that like poetry is different than prose, right? A poem reads different than an essay, and that's by design. I mean, there's different kinds of writing for different occasions. Well, they had a kind of writing that was very popular around the first century that just doesn't exist anymore, and we, except in history, and we call it apocalyptic literature or the apocalyptic genre. And it is, that's what Revelation is written in, and it is full of of symbolic images. It's full of symbolic imagery. So in apocalyptic literature, what happens is you get events or people or, or places described, but they're virtually never described literally. They are full of symbols. Okay? It's symbolic imagery that says something about literal realities. But the pictures that are being painted in, in uh, apocalyptic literature are not sort of like photographic representations. Like if you were in John's shoes, standing in heaven today, and you took a snapshot, it would be exactly what's described here in Revelation 4. These is, this is symbolic imagery by which God is trying to communicate literal truths that are just beyond our normal experience. And that's why it seems so weird. There's all these huge symbols, and we're going to look at just a few of them briefly. What we're going to do is, is just run quickly through this brief chapter. I'm going to point out a couple highlights on the way, and then we're going to sum up at the end with three ways that a high vision of God, such as the one in this passage, should impact our lives today. So with that in mind, let's dive in. We've already seen in verse 1, this door in heaven, quote-unquote, is open, and John, in a vision, is taken to heaven, and the first thing that he sees, the dwelling place of God, in verse 2, is pictured first and foremost as a throne room. It's a throne room. Now, that in and of itself is an image. It, it, it's a picture 
We know what thrones are. People in the first century were very familiar with thrones in a throne room. A throne room was the way that kings in the ancient world, and even many sort of dictators and so on in modern times, uh, will sort of demonstrate their, their dominance, and they put their power on display. To be the king sitting on the throne in the throne room was a way of saying, I'm in charge. I have the power. And so when the Apostle John is taken and shown this vision of heaven, the very first thing that he notices about it, the first image, is the image of a throne room. And the meaning of the image is pretty clear, is it not? This may be a symbolic image, but it's not at all difficult to interpret what it means. The first and most important thing that can be said about God is that He is the universe's sovereign King. And He is on His throne, exercising His reign and His rule right now. That's what those seven churches back then needed to understand. Now, there's a lot of allusion in this passage to two Old Testament prophets who also received uh, visionary depictions of heaven's throne room about 700 years before this time, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament and the prophet Ezekiel. Both of those guys captured their visions in the books that are named after them in the Old Testament. John here is alluding to Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 1, which is also a picture of God's heavenly throne room. It's also apocalyptic literature loaded with symbolism, and many of the symbols are very similar to what we find here in Revelation 4. In Ezekiel's vision, God the Father is pictured as seated on His throne, and yet He Himself is not described at all in any detail. Because remember, in the context of Old Testament Judaism, God Himself is so holy, you don't dare try to describe Him. To describe Him is to make an idol out of Him. And so we find that God the Father is not described, either in Ezekiel's vision or here in Revelation 4. It says we see a figure seated on the throne, but the only thing that is said about Him is that He's surrounded by brilliant, shimmering light as the colors of sunlight that would be refracted through jewels or in a rainbow. And in an era before there were neon lights and fireworks, some of the most brilliant and stunning displays of light that you would find would be when you saw sunlight refracted through a jewel or you saw a bright rainbow after a rainstorm. That image of light is coming from God. And the point is simply this. The universe is governed by its glorious and magnificent maker. Whether it feels like that or not. This is the vision Jesus wanted John to see. Now, the next uh, five verses or so, from verse 4 down to about verse 8, what we see is several other images of things in heaven that are all designed for one purpose. They're designed to show us just how far God is from John, who's the one from whose perspective we're seeing these things, how high he is and how separate he is. And I want to quickly just kind of walk through some of these images. The first thing we get is uh, several sort of concentric rings of powerful angelic beings, different ranks of angels that are between John and God. And the second thing we get is images of more um, natural or natural phenomena that also serve to separate John from God. A couple of brief points on each of these as we move uh, through verse 4 on down. The first group of angels that we meet is uh, this group in verse 4 who are uh, referred to as 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
Uh, these guys are going to re appear repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation. We'll keep running into these elders. There's a little bit of debate over who they actually are. I think it's most likely uh, to see them as angelic beings who represent the people, the whole people of God. That's where the number 24 comes in. Uh, remember one other little quick mention here. In apocalyptic literature, almost every number you find is used symbolically. Even if it has a literal meaning, it also has a symbolic one. The 24 is a very common biblical way of referring to the 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, and the 12 apostles of the church representing the new covenant people of God. And so just as we saw in chapter 1, seven angels that each somehow were connected to and represented seven local congregations, these, uh, this image of 24 angelic beings seems to be angels who somehow represent the whole number of the people of God. Notice that they are on thrones themselves. They have crowns. These are powerful, ruling entities. These are not just whimpering little bondservants. But their thrones are around the throne. Even these rulers are lesser than God. As you move down to the bottom of verse 5, you see another um, layer, as it were, another order of angels between John and the throne. In verse 5, he says, the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The Old Testament referred to what were known as seraphim. That's basically a Hebrew way of saying burning ones, flaming ones. And that is how angels appeared oftentimes in Old Testament prophetic visions. They appear the same beings who are aflame with fire. They are powerful. They are intimidating. They are bright, they are burning, and they are arrayed before the throne of God. This is the picture, standing ready to do His will. And by the way, these seven angels are also going to recur. We're going to run into them later in Revelation 2. They do go ahead and execute God's will, and when they do, it's bad news. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that toward uh, later in the book, uh, these are the seven angels who are given seven bowls filled with the wrath of God, and they pour God's wrath out on sinful humanity. They are agents of God's judgment. A very powerful and intimidating view of a rank of angels ready to execute God's will. Lastly, starting in verse 6, we see what are referred to as four living creatures. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, four living creatures full of eyes front and behind, the first like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like a man, and the fourth with a, fourth with a face like an eagle. And they stood around with six wings full of eyes around and within. I told you this is weird. <laughs> But you see, this is what apocalyptic imagery does. These aren't literal pictures of like what literal angels look like if you were to stare at them in heaven. In fact, what's going on here is John's vision contains some of the same imagery that Ezekiel's vision and Isaiah's vision did in the Old Testament. He's drawing from many of the same symbols. So we know we're seeing the same kind of thing. Although if you go back and you compare these four living creatures around the throne of God in John's vision to the four living creatures that were around the throne of God in Ezekiel's vision, you will notice a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences. Quite a number of differences, as a matter of fact. Ezekiel's angels were even weirder each one of them, the Old Testament said, had four faces, each facing a different direction. How bizarre is that? 
And each one of them had a face that looked like a lion, another face that looked like an ox, another face that looked like an eagle, another face that looked like a human. Well, now you get into Revelation chapter 1, and you've got four different angels surrounding the throne, but they each only have one face, which is a little less weird. But the one is of a man, the one is of an ox, the one is of a lion, the one is of an eagle. You see the same thing going on, but the details are different. So what's the problem? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Do these angels have four faces or one? That misses the whole point of how apocalyptic literature works. These aren't photographic representations. They are symbolic images that picture realities. What is the reality being pictured here? Well, thrones back in the day often had carved images, uh, many times of animal heads, to symbolize the power of their kings. It wouldn't have been uncommon to have a king sitting on a throne that had carved lion's heads, you know, on the armrests or something like that. And that's the king's way of trying to identify his rule and his authority with the way people would think about, you know, lions back then. And it's not really too unlike the way that modern nations sometimes associate themselves with animals. You know, Russia has typically been associated with the bear. In the U.S., we like to associate ourselves with the eagle, and the British Empire is associated with the lion. It's the same kind of idea. Well, the throne of God in this vision is surrounded by four angels who have the heads of various earthly creatures, probably to emphasize the various attributes that first century people would have associated with those living creatures, such as authority, in the case of the lion, who was known as the king of the beasts, still kind of is, Uh, strength, the ox was thought of in the first century as being the strongest and the greatest endurance, a picture of total strength and power and endurance, Uh, the Head of a man likely representing intelligence and wisdom, mankind being the most intelligent, creative, and wise being on the planet, and finally God's providential care as represented by an eagle, which is often how eagles are depicted, particularly in the Old Testament. So these are saying some things about the nature of God's rule and reign. And this eyes all around business, in front of them and behind them, they're covered with eyes, is just really weird. Again, you're not supposed to like draw that. That's not supposed to be like a real picture. The point is that eyes in apocalyptic literature often serve as pictures of omniscience. God can see everything in front, behind, and so can his servants. God's reign and rule sees all. Nothing escapes his notice. What's the point of all this? These concentric rings or layers of various angelic beings surrounding God's throne stand between God and John. If John's going to get to God, he's got to go through all these guys, and the least among them is so authoritative and intimidating that you would quake in fear to be anywhere around them. You can't get there, although they too are bowing down and worshiping God the Father. Secondly, there are some natural features. Just a couple of quick comments on these. Uh, First, we saw that there was lightning and thunder surrounding God's throne. I don't know what you think of when you picture God's throne in heaven, but what John, the image John was seeing was not of this kind of beautiful, gilded, golden throne um, sitting in the middle of a field of green grass with a blue sky on a warm summer day with a gentle breeze and God the Father waiting for us to just kind of crawl up into his lap so he can hold us and read us a story and love us while the birds sing in the trees and the butterflies twit by. That's an official verb, by the way. No, this, this, is, this is gloom and darkness. This is clouds and smoke, flashes of lightning and peals of thunder that shake the ground and take your breath away. 
the imagery is obviously an allusion to Exodus chapter 19. Back when God came down on Mount Sinai and gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments for the first time, and He came down with fire and smoke and thunder that shook the earth and lightning flashes, and He said to His people, come up onto the mountain so that I can speak with you face to face. Trust me, even though I'm a scary guy, I'll take care of you. And they looked at that thunder and that lightning and that rumbling, and they said, no way. They said, Moses, you go talk to God for us. We'll see when you get back, if you get back. Poor Moses. <laughs> they weren't going anywhere near that image. That's the imagery here. This is a powerful storm that shakes you with fear. And lastly, verse 6, there's the sea of glass. Sea of glass. That's an unfortunate phrase for modern Americans. Because when we think of a lake that's like glass or a sea that's like glass, what are we thinking of? Calm, perfect tranquility. All the guys with water ski boats are like, yes! The lake is like glass. I want to get out there. It's just perfectly flat, perfectly clear. Because when we think of glass, we think of like windows, right? And windows are flat and windows are perfectly clear. You can see right through them. The problem is that's not what first century people, the original readers of this, would have thought of because there was glass around the first century, but it wasn't clear. Uh, nor was it flat. In fact, the technology to create clear glass was only just about to be invented, and it wasn't for some time that it would become widespread. So here at the end of the first century, when you're talking about glass, you're talking about glass that was translucent. I mean, light could get through, but you couldn't see through it. And, and they would make cups and bowls out of it, but they didn't have the technology to make a big pane of glass that was perfectly flat, like a window in our kitchen or something like that, like we have today. So glass was, was bumpy, glass was irregular, glass refracted light. And so when he's looking at this sea and saying it was like glass, and you tie it to this idea of this storm going on, the image becomes pretty apparent. This is no tranquil, flat sea. There's a storm. This is a tempestuous ocean that is roiling and storming. It's chaotic. And it is refracting light, probably from all of the lightning and the rainbow colors coming from the throne or bouncing off of these jagged edges of the waves, which according to John, the best thing he could say is that's like broken glass or, or a piece of glass. So if John is going to get to God, he's got to get across this vast roiling ocean that would surely drown him. He's got to get through the storm. He's got to get through rank after rank of incredibly powerful angels. God is high and He is holy. In the last part of our passage, the last couple of verses, God is praised by these angelic beings for two things. First of all, He is praised for His holiness by these four living creatures in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We just sang that. And then whenever they sing that, the 24 elders fall down and they cast their crowns before Him and they praise Him in verse 10, for being the creator of all. Uh, sorry, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things. And by casting down their crowns in that moment, they're showing that creation means, the fact that they're created means he uh, is owed their allegiance. When God is praised for his holiness... The idea there of God being holy is that He's separate. He's different than us. Uh, certainly, we usually think of, mo of holiness in terms of like moral holiness or, or ethical, ethical living. And, and that's part of it, but that's not all of it. 
We think of God's sort of power and separateness from us, and and that's part of it too, but that's not all of it. A theologian, D.A. Carson, points out that at the end of the day, what God's holiness comes down to is everything about Him that makes Him other than us. The holiness of God, Carson says, is ultimately the godness of God. Everything that makes God who He is, everything that makes God distinct from those that He created, that is His holiness. And He is praised. This is a way of saying, you are exalted, you are other, you are higher. That's what these angels are saying to Him. And then by praising Him for being the Creator, while they get off their thrones and cast down their crowns, the images of their ruling authority, it's very clear that the message is that everything that is owes its existence to God. And everything we have, we owe to Him. Even these angelic beings with their authority and their power, it's all derived authority. It all comes from Him. Because everything and everyone owes its existence to God. God alone stands as the one who derives His authority from no one. That's what the image is trying to tell us in the Bible. God alone in the universe owes His existence to no one. And God alone answers to no one. He doesn't need anything from anyone unlike everything else in creation. This image of Revelation chapter 4, this, this visual picture of the heaven as God's throne room is designed to show us how high and how holy and separate He is. Now, as we said, there's a drama that's going to take place on that stage in chapter 5, and we'll get to that next Sunday. But for a moment, let's spend a few minutes as we close thinking about the implications of just this image. What difference does a high and lofty view of God make in our lives? I want to suggest at least three differences, three impacts on our lives, and they're all connected. First, a high view of what theologians call God's transcendence, how big and how high and how far and separate He is from us. A big view of God's transcendence reorients my perspective on what's most important. It reorients my perspective on what's most important. I felt challenged personally this week as I was reading this chapter. I felt my inherent me-ism challenged. You know, I see life from my point of view. That's almost by definition. That's just the way it is. I see life with myself at the center of it. Even when I know I'm not the center of everything that happens around me, I tend to view life in terms of how it affects me and those that I love. It's about me and it's about my life. Like everyone, I have a tendency to set my own goals and decide for myself what my life is going to be about. To define for myself the correct course of action in any given situation. Those calls are my responsibility to make. That's a natural tendency of the human heart for all people at all times. But of course, our modern American culture has elevated that idea that you define your own reality. We've elevated that to a core value. We love to tell one another how powerful you are. How you can be anything you want to be and how you alone define what's right for you and you shouldn't let anyone else tell you otherwise. You are the captain of your own destiny. You determine the course of your life. You be God at least for yourself. 
But God here is praised for being the creator of all things. That means everyone and everything owes its allegiance to God. We owe Him that allegiance. Which means that if I'm not at this very moment submitting myself to the authority of God as a king, then I am living in violation of the most basic fact of the universe. God sits on the universe's throne. I'm out of alignment with the world around me because I'm out of alignment with God's rule and reign. I owe him my allegiance because he made me. In fact, the problems of my life, according to the Bible, all stem from this one big problem. The human race has chosen to live out of step with the universe because we as a whole have rejected God's authority in our lives. Friends, let me just mention that it's easy to to sit here in church on a Sunday and say, yeah, that's their problem, that human race out there, right? I mean, surely I'm I'm not a perfectly, uh, perfect submitting servant of God, but look where I am. I don't totally reject God. I'm a Christian. I've given my life to God. I attend church. I didn't have to be here. I chose to be here. I give my time to the things of God. Maybe I I tithe the way He wants me to. I give my money to the things of God. I, I read God's Word sometimes. I pray. I give my life to following Him. So I know I don't do that perfectly, but surely I'm not one of the rebels that the Bible has in mind. But it's worth pointing out that even our religion can be a subtle form of me-ism. In fact, it's probably the most dangerous because it's the most difficult to detect. You see, I can approach God because I want God in my life. I can approach God in a way that I hope He will help me build the kind of life that I ultimately want to have. I come to God because I want a good marriage if I'm married or if I want to be married. I come to God because I want a good relationship with my kids and my grandkids, because I want a good job, because I want health. I want to know that I'm with God and I can call on God in times of need. And that's not always a bad thing, but if that's the center of my relationship with God, I may be coming to God on my terms because of what He can do for me. And friends, if this picture of God on His throne in heaven tells us anything, it tells us that God cannot be had on my terms. It's an impossibility. It simply cannot happen. God will either be had on His terms or He will not be had at all. Those are the only choices we have. It also tells me that everything in my life is contingent. It all derives from God. Meaning nothing is ultimate. Only God and His glory is. Again, that's why, that's a connection to these seven churches. Jesus had called all seven of those churches to repent where they had sins and to suffer well and long and faithfully for Jesus. That was going to cost them a lot in this life. And there's no way they were going to give that up unless they had a high view of God. That really leads us to our second point, the main point of the day. We've already covered it. This transcendent view of God is essential to serving God faithfully over the long haul. And this is because God has so designed us as people that we only pursue for the long haul that which we really love. 
That's the way it is. That's the way all people are. That's the way God made us. We will only consistently pursue over the long haul that which we most love. We can only go on discipline and willpower down any given road. We can only go so far. At some point, if I'm doing something I think I should do, or it's my duty to do, but I don't really want to do it, at some point, I'm going to run out of willpower. Or we'll find ways to do it half-heartedly, or only do it sometimes, or just quit trying altogether. These seven churches were called to endure suffering, the loss of good things, the loss of income, the loss of their freedom and security. Some of them were incarcerated because of their faith in Christ. Uh, the loss of their social standing, friends and relationships with family members, and in a few cases, even the loss of their life itself. If I'm ever asked to sacrifice something for Jesus that I truly love more than Jesus, I just won't do it. I won't. That's not how the human heart works. If I love my family more than I love Jesus... And I ever get to a place where I feel like I have to choose between having a close relationship with one of my kids or my grandkids or my spouse on the one hand or believing what God has taught clearly on the other hand, I'm going to choose my relationship with my family. Every time. Every time. I will reinterpret or prevaricate on what I think God taught or, or I'll find a way to deal with that, but I will not give this up because it's my greatest love. You see, if I love money and the security and the comfort that it provides above all things, then when it comes time to spend either more on myself or to give more generously to advance Jesus' kingdom, I will choose myself every time because that's what I really love. We pursue the things that we love the most. Well, a big view of God helps captivate our hearts on what's most important. By the way, that's why apocalyptic literature exists and full of all its weird symbolism, because it's not just trying to engage our minds and teach us truth, although it is trying to do that. It's trying to engage our imagination, to inflame the imagination and fuel the heart to see God for what He really is, the greatest and most valuable thing in the universe, so that our hearts may follow in love, because only when we love Him most will we serve Him faithfully. That's why he gave the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 this picture, and that's why he's given it to us. And one final comment, one final impact that this view has on us that's maybe relevant to the season. I think a high view of God's transcendence is also the key to appreciating Advent season and Christmas. Now again, I don't like rolling out Christmas stuff before Thanksgiving more than most of us do. But a quirk of the calendar is that the Advent season starts this next Sunday. Advent, if you're not familiar with it, is a season of four Sundays before Christmas in which churches all around the world try to focus their hearts and their minds on preparing to fully appreciate the miracle of Christmas, which is the birth of Jesus, the coming of God into this world as a man. We want to fully appreciate that and not just have it get kind of lost in the, the chaos and the cacophony of the holiday season. Well, I would submit that I can't rightly appreciate the coming of God to me until I fully appreciate the distance of God from me. Do you see? I will never truly appreciate the coming of God to me until I appreciate the distance of God from me. 
If my view of God is too small, overemphasizing, as it is easy to do in our modern context, sort of a a chummy, chummy view of God that sees, sees Jesus as my best friend. He's just with me all the time. He's, he's, he's got my back. He's in all of my stuff. He cares about me. He loves me. He's just like the ideal best friend, the ideal best bud. If that's my view of God, then frankly, it makes perfect sense that he would want to come be with us on Christmas because we want to be with people we love, do we not? It's the most obvious thing in the world. If I love you, I want to spend time with you. And so if God loves us, why wouldn't he want to spend time with us? How big a miracle really is Christmas? After all, God loves us so much, of course he wants to come be with us. We travel at the holiday season to see our family. Oh, maybe it costs us some money and the inconvenience of travel. And, you know, we appreciate that, but, but you don't expect anything less. When you love people, you want to be with them. It may be that at least part of the reason we struggle to keep Christ at the center of Christmas. Yes, there's busy schedules. Yes, there's consumerism that pulls on our hearts. Yes, all those things are true. It may be, though, that another part of the reason we sometimes struggle to keep Christ at the center of Christmas is because we don't see His coming to earth as any different than my Aunt Matilda getting on a plane and flying to Oregon to visit us at Christmas time. Oh, sure, she had to buy a plane ticket and rearrange her schedule. It's inconvenient, and we appreciate that for sure, but we don't expect anything less. She loves us. We love her. She wants to be with us. We want her here. It's the most natural thing in the world. And if it isn't any different with God, then what is the miracle? I can't appreciate the coming of God to me until I understand the distance of God from me. You want to have a Christ-centered Christmas? May I suggest then that we lead ourselves and our friends and our family members to dwell on a high and holy and separate view of God's seated on the universe's throne, utterly unapproachable in all of His glory and His might and His holiness. Let that image Fuel your imagination. Let it drive your emotions. Whatever those emotions are, don't run from them. Experience them. And then turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I close with this. That Jesus Christ did not consider His equality with God something to be held on to, but He emptied Himself. He let His high, holy position, go. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And let that slay your heart. Because a big vision of God is the key to understanding the miracle of Christmas. I want to pray for us, and in that spirit, in that sense, I want to invite us to sing and to worship. So pray with me as the worship team comes up, as we come before our high and holy God. God, as we speak to you, it's, it's understood at one level it's absolutely absurd that I'm speaking to you. I have no place to do so. 
Because like every angel that was ever created, I am a being made by you. And yet, because you are a God of such magnificent love, you have made a way for us to have relationship together because you came to be with us. You overcame the distance between us that we could never overcome on our own. And it is that that we celebrate as your church during this Advent season. God, receive the worship of a faithful and grateful and humble people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.